Welcome to What in the World. My name is Ryan Rosenthal, joined as always by my co-host, Andre Ganoella. And Andre, a lot has been happening this week. There's a lot on my plate. I'm sure there's a lot on yours. Where are we starting? Well, let's start in Russia, Ryan, your favorite country. Uh, well, basically, it's a very serious thing, actually, that's happening. Alexei Navalny, who we've talked about repeatedly on the podcast, the uh, opposition leader who has now been in jail for a little bit, uh, he has declared a hunger strike in Russia. Uh, I don't really know if this hunger strike is going to end up well for him. I don't think it's going to end well for him. But Ryan, what what are your thoughts? Uh, what are his motives in terms of declaring a hunger strike? Like, what's he hoping to achieve? Like international sympathy, or like because it's like they're not going to budge. No, they're definitely not going to budge. But I mean, it's actually simpler than that. It's just access to proper medical care. I mean, he's he's had severe back pain. He's really. Um, been kind of undergoing very harsh treatment, and all he wants is medical assistance. And so that's really the, the the reasoning behind this hunger strike. And so, I mean, for someone like him who is an already uh, a, a poor position, going on a hunger strike is only going to you know make his uh, his condition even worse. And so, uh, I'm, I'm quite worried that uh, Alexei Navalny is really just kind of writing his own death sentence. Of course, it's a it's a bold and an honorable move uh, on his part. About the loss of Alexei Navalny uh, would be just a huge blow for for Russia's uh, democracy uh, and opposition movement. So, like, I mean, like, if he dies, like, if he dies, is that really going to change anything for like Putin? Like, is the world going to like suddenly like? I mean, the world's going to certainly like the United States will condemn Russia, but like beyond that, what will they do? If Navalny dies, like, like, will anything like really happen? Will anything really change? Um, I mean, like Russia's democracy movement, like how successful was it? So there's a lot of moving parts here. Let's take this in two parts. I'll start with, you know, the external facing part, right? So the, the, how the, the world interacts with Russia, um, you know, of course, now that the United States is a bit more um, adversarial with, with Russia, or at least is more willing to push back, we'd likely see more assertive action by the United States if Alexei Navalny were to die. Uh, I mean, the, the Biden administration has already condemned his treatment. Uh, sanctions have, have been levied. So there's really not much more that the, that the international community can do. Uh, I mean, of course, you can cut off diplomatic ties, but that, of course, raises the stakes, particularly because Russia is a nuclear-armed country. It's a big country. It's a powerful country. Not necessarily in in its economic might, but its military might is there, and so you there's a fine line that needs to be drawn there, right? Because when you lose Navalny, there there, there really has to be a response. You'll see the West, these NATO countries, kind of come out and and make a big fuss about it. But I mean, really, when you're looking uh, at all of these international um, organizations that are trying to help Navalny, the, these um, the, the West and other like-minded countries, they're, they're very limited in, in what they can do just because you're not going to take significant or severe action against Russia just because, I mean, that's inviting them to respond. And so putting that aside, the, the domestic situation in Russia is a bit more complicated. While, I mean, everyone sees that Putin's on, on top and, you know, he might be seen as a dictator, that's really not actual, in, in my opinion, in my analysis of it, that's not how the country really works. There's a vertical of power. There's a lot of moving parts. There's a lot of people that Putin has to please uh, in order to maintain his regime. And so, and 
And there is a, a large and not very strong, but considerably vocal and, and the, the ability to mobilize within the, the opposition is significant, right? I mean, we've seen huge protests in the, in the past year for a variety of reasons. The, one of them being the, the, the imprisonment of a, of a governor, um, uh, Sergei Furgal. I think we talked about it um, with, uh, in our episode with John Byerly, former ambassador to Russia. Um, and so that, you know, that caused people a- across Russia to protest. And then with Navalny, we've seen huge protests and solidarity with him. Uh, and, and really what it's, it's materialized into is, is mass arrests, beatings of people, but the regime's still there. And so if Navalny were to die, I mean, it's not going to really destroy the democracy movement. He, it's not just Navalny behind it, but he certainly is the face of it. And so when you lose the face of any sort of movement like this, it's a big blow, but there are, it also allows for opportunities for other individuals to kind of step in. And again, I've said this before, it wouldn't surprise me if, if Navalny's wife, Yulia, uh, became one of those individuals who were to step up. But I mean, really, just for Navalny's sake, I, I hope this doesn't happen. He is an incredibly impressive man and has done a lot of work um, that has benefited Russia's civil society. And so we'll see what happens. But at the end of the day, it's, it's very difficult for any individual to kind of take down Putin. And, and Navalny's probably done one of the most effective jobs in kind of peeling back the veil uh, on the Putin regime. But at the end of the day, I mean, it, it, I'll keep reiterating this, um, Putin is unlikely to go away um, by other factors other than his own. Like, I mean, has he really been weakened at all politically, Putin, like over the last couple of years? Yes, yes for sure. Un- undoubtedly. Yes, he, he has been weakened, but that's, there's, it's, a, it's a compounding of factors. I mean, Russia's domestic situation is abysmal. Their economy is in shambles. People, I mean, really the, the hardest thing uh, about, about Putin's grip on power is maintaining some semblance of, of normalcy. And you know, we, we saw, and we'll talk about this because it's another huge thing, is the annexation of Crimea, the the support of separatist movements in, in Eastern Ukraine, because that's a part of kind of rebuilding Russia and Russian empire about um, kind of rebuilding Russian greatness. And Putin did this very well um, in the early to mid and uh, 2000s and into like the 2010. Um, and, but since 2015, 2016, it's been a, it's a steep decline. And we've seen this in his approval ratings. Um, and so there's been a lot of movement in Russia's government just so that he can bring in people who will hopefully um, kind of improve the system, right? That's why we saw Dmitry Medvedev, the former prime minister, is no longer prime minister. Mikhail Mishustin was brought in because he was you know, one of these guys who is a, a bureaucrat, a career bureaucrat, who they thought could kind of bring the system back to some semblance of efficiency. And so with the Russian population decreasingly interested in the Putin regime, particularly the younger generation, uh, there are all these external pressures. But again, right, even when you have these pressures, th- there's still such a, a capable security apparatus, but even the most capable security apparatuses can fall. We've seen this in many other case scenarios. Russia is just maybe a more difficult one. Well, we'll certainly see what happens in Russia in over the next few days and weeks, likely months, actually. Uh, anyway, Ryan, we didn't. We actually didn't have what in the world uh, last Friday, but we didn't get to talk about the outcome of the Israeli elections, which is likely the uh, the chance that there will be another election in Israel because uh, Netanyahu 
yes, Likud won a major a, a plurality plurality, not majority, plurality keyword of the seats in the Knesset, but they don't have a coalition to get a majority. So there is a deadlock. President Rivlin is apparently trying to see what all these other parties are saying in terms of who they want to actually lead the next government, which will be a coalition. But it's looking very likely that there is going to be another election uh Netanyahu, whose corruption trial is also proceeding. Uh, prosecutors are going to be presenting evidence in that trial very soon. So certainly for Netanyahu, time is of the essence. I think when you don't, though, have a clear victor in the election, uh, the prior prime minister will continue serving. So Netanyahu will still be prime minister. But Ryan, what do you think is going to happen? Do you think this guy is going to stay prime minister post the next election, do you think there's not a chance that the opposition leaders, that they might be able to clinch some coalition? What's the deal? So the most interesting part of this is that, I mean, at least for me and, and how I view it, I think Netanyahu might hold on for a little bit longer, but not much longer. I'm not really sure how many more elections we have to get through for Netanyahu to finally kind of lose out for his coalition to, to not build. But again, as we talked about last uh, last week, the the Arab factions within the Knesset have a considerable amount of power. Um, but interestingly enough, they're not endorsing any prime minister candidate, and so, and that's significant. And so, if if for some reason um, these factions move to one person or the other, that might be the deciding factor. And I'm not so sure who they're going to pick. I I, I don't have enough familiarity with it. Um, but it can certainly be the case that it's not Netanyahu, and then. Netanyahu will be out, and then we'll certainly be um, going through with the, the actual trial of the, this anti-corruption um, investigation that for a variety of you know bribery charges. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, Israel. I mean, really, I think the Israeli people just want to, to sleep well at night. I mean, they just they want some sort of kind of peace and quiet, and no more elections, just because. I mean, the political chaos is compounded by other kind of moving factors within Israel, just because the whether it's the, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. I mean, that's an overarching issue. You have more geopolitical issues. Uh, and so I, I really think that, I mean, at some point, the Israeli population is just going to say we've had enough. What does the average Likud representative look like, though? As in, like, how do they think? Like, when we Likud is a right-wing party, but how right-wing are they? And, like, we, we've seen Netanyahu, like, we've known Netanyahu for over, like, 25 years as this public persona, he was prime minister again in the late 90s. He has been prime minister for the past 12 years, the longest serving, I think, since Ben-Gurion, I think even exceeding Ben-Gurion, but it was the first prime minister. But, I mean, with with that being said, it, it appears that Netanyahu has been pushed more right over the last few years, more so than he was, and he was already right-wing. But, like... If he's gone, or is he going to be re- replaced by a more right-wing uh, leader, or like what's the deal? Like, is like what does Likud look like? I, I think it'd be harder. I mean, it's really it's not really Likud that is so far right or so right-leaning. It's really the coalition he, he's had to build in order to you know maintain his prime ministership, and so those aspects, the, those factions that he's had to bring in to build the coalition, those are far more. Uh, right, those are more you know no two no two state solution, very heavy on settlement building, very uh, Jewish nationalist within Israel. 
And so uh, if uh, and maybe when Netanyahu goes, I'm I'm almost positive we're going to see a shift to the left just because to the left. I think so. I, I wouldn't be surprised just because I don't think that if without Netanyahu, like Kud's probably going to, I mean, really fall apart, I think. I mean, there's not, and I think we might, and that might give an opportunity for the more left-leaning um, parties, the the labor party to kind of, kind of, you know, increase its power and particularly create a coalition with, with more Arab parties, just because, I mean, the only reason why I think these, these Arab parties are looking to maybe align with Netanyahu is just because they'll have a, a more, a bigger voice, a better seat at the table. And so uh, again, you know, I'm not an expert in Israeli politics, but uh, I, I don't think that uh, Likud will have a very strong shot if Netanyahu were gone. Um, and I think really, you know, it, it's more likely that that other parties w- would be able to take over. What's your assessment? Am I completely far off? I don't really know, right? Like, I mean, the previous Likud prime minister before Netanyahu was Ariel Sharon. But, you know, in around 2005, he went and formed his own party, Kadima. And before Ariel Sharon was the last Likud prime minister, the previous Likud prime minister is Benjamin Netanyahu between 96 and 99. So really, I mean, he's the type of guy who would theoretically hold it together just because he's sort of had power within it and over it for the literally the past quarter of a century. And I'm sure he'd like to keep that power as well. But I mean, I, I don't know. Like, I mean... I feel like the, the way the coalition's been built, it's, it's like I always hear like it's going to be more right wing. It's going to be more right wing because they're appeasing certain elements and stuff. But I don't know. I don't know. I mean, it's just just it's just been in the state of gridlock for the past like four or five elections. Right. I mean, and you also have, you know, interesting parties like uh, Avigdor Lieberman's party, Yisrael Betenu. I mean, there's there's a lot of I mean, there's just so many parties in Israel. And so you have the blue and white party, which is Benny Gantz's party, which is a more of centrist. Um, and so uh, again, right, you have, I, I think that might be the most realistic outcome is maybe Benny Gantz's party is able to build a coalition and then he'll be uh, prime minister kind of by, by building upon some of the more center party, center left parties, um, just because you have, of course, this contingent of center right and, and more right leaning parties. Um, but again, I mean, it's, it's not split evenly, but it's split close enough to where I think one or the other might be uh, kind of taken over. Yeah, it would be very interesting to see. Anyway, I think moving on uh, further east, uh, what's been happening in Myanmar is sort of more in the same, well, not more in the same, but more in the same of just these killings and these massacres, frankly, of protesters by the military junta who took over the country after launching a coup against a democratically elected government of Aung San Suu Kyi. So interestingly, there's also this, uh, this separatist movement that's been happening in Myanmar for the past around 70 years. It's sort of been on and off, but there are like a couple of these militant groups, one of which I think the most prominent of which is the Karen National Union uh, or the KNU. And the military government of Myanmar has been launching airstrikes in the southeast area of the country against the KNU. And uh, very unfortunately, there have been children who were killed in those airstrikes. But that conflict's been going on adjacent to these protests for democracy. And uh, I, I believe there was a recent ceasefire that was declared. 
by the Myanmar government against those militant groups, I think, at least with regards to military action. But uh, the ceasefire does not apply to protesters. So you will still see that bloodshed, I think, occurring very sadly. And uh, Andre, I don't know if you saw this, but uh, interestingly enough, uh, one of Russia's top generals visited Myanmar amidst all of the crackdown and protests. I just thought that was an interesting wrinkle in the story that while you have much of the world condemning Myanmar uh, for its actions against its citizens, of of course, a Russian general is being paraded uh, in a state visit. Yeah. So like the, the military did like declare that ceasefire for like from April 1st to April 30th, they quote unquote offered the ceasefire. We'll see if the ceasefire actually persists. But again, it said, quote, People who commit actions that disrupt government security and administration, protesters, it does not apply to them. So we'll see what else happens in Myanmar, but it's a very sad situation. Absolutely. So um, let's let's shift to Africa because there's a couple stories in Africa that I want to hit on. The first being uh, a spat potentially between Egypt and Ethiopia. We've talked a lot about Ethiopia and the struggles. Um, within kind of the, the regional politics, but now Egypt uh, is is telling uh, Ethiopia that the Nile River and its waters are quote unquote untouchable. Um, it says it's it's building a giant dam on the the main tributary uh, in the Nile River, and so uh, President Sisi uh, has been saying this uh, amid a kind of years of, of of deadlock and these talks over this dam, which is uh, in between you know these these two Nile basin. Basin countries, which includes Sudan, which has its own uh, difficulties politically, uh, and so uh, this is really just a, a symptom of the times where we have resource scarcity and water being one of the most important resources. And so I think that um, Egypt could very well take aggressive offensive military action if there's no movement from the Ethiopian side. Um, again, I think it might be opportunistic for Egypt given all of Ethiopia's internal struggles. Um, and so we'll see what President Sisi does in Egypt. But I think if we're looking kind of long term, uh, resource wars are on the rise. So like, what do you mean? They're going to invade Ethiopia? Not necessarily invade. I, that might be a bit far off, but they might take some sort of, of offensive military action to deter or dissuade uh, Ethiopia's posture, right? To kind of get them to understand that this is not going to happen, right? I, I think Again, I mean, the, the other scenarios that I see are maybe like in, in India, where you have you know, the important river chains. I mean, a, around the world, um, we, we see kind of these little spats over resources. Water is one of them. Um, there's uh, uh, other types of resources that we see conflict over, whether it be you know, oil um, or water. I mean, uh, resources are really becoming a, something to fight wars over, even more so now. And so let's just quickly t- t- touch on the second Africa story. That is the, the resurgence of ISIS, but not in the Middle East, Andre, uh, in Mozambique. We've seen ISIS militants kind of wreak havoc uh, in recent weeks. And so over the weekend, uh, 200 workers were kind of held up in this hotel. And so uh, really, I think, you know, while we, we talked about ISIS kind of being decimated in other parts of the world, um, this these militants are still kind of taking action and just, again, uh, you know, killing people, taking, holding people hostage, uh, 
and just causing huge problems uh, in Mozambique. And so I think this is something to watch. There's a great New York Times article by Eric Schmidt on it. I suggest you all check it out. We'll have it linked. Um, but yeah, ISIS is really not fully gone. Yeah, certainly. And like, I mean, especially with the killing of the British contractor in Mozambique, it'll be sort of interesting to see what the British government may do about that. Uh, There's also some news, I think, with regards to the Philippines and China. Uh, Ryan, what's happening with the Philippines and China, actually? Yeah, so just kind of like, I guess, a brief overview. So the Philippines and China, along with many other countries in the South China Sea, have competing claims to uh, little archipelagos, to little islands there and island chains. And so uh, of course, China asserts its sovereignty over all of them. They have their nine dash line. The Philippines has competing claims. And so these Chinese ships were kind of um, all kind of organized close to the Philippines or at least in an area that the Philippines claims. And so they've since uh, kind of mobilized their own naval forces, their Coast Guard, and have, have been saying to China that, hey, you know, you guys are constructing um, illegal structures on these these disputed islands and China's saying we don't know what you're talking about saying that you know we're not sending these these fishing vessels these commercial vessels these military vessels uh, down in your waters they're our waters and even if they were in our waters we have freedom of navigation uh, and so again uh, it, it, we, we've talked about the South China Sea a lot it's a really it's an important hot spot I think it's one of the the ones to pay attention to particularly because of these competing claims and really just because China has the, the power dynamic is such that China has all the power, and the only uh, country there that could maybe stand up to China is the United States. And the United States has and does conduct freedom of navigation operations in the region. We talked about this um, with Admiral Stavridis uh, in that episode. And so, uh, yeah, I mean, the Philippines is making a stand. Uh, they actually won their, their case um, against China uh, in international court, and China's just been ignoring that ruling, but nonetheless, they did win. Yeah, freedom of navigation is going to be a big issue. I mean, like we've seen this issue pop up with China numerous times repeatedly over the last decade. Many countries, the Philippines, Japan, many along the South China Sea, many along the East China Sea have been very worried about this, the creation of these artificial islands, the creation of these artificial structures uh, by China. So this is just the latest in that de- in that sort of long-running uh, journey, that long those long-running developments and so on. All right. Well, I have I have one more story on my on my plate. If unless you have something else on yours, nope. All right. Well, we'll close out with how we started with Russia. Um, and so, in the past couple of days, Russia has been mobilizing troops on Ukraine's easternmost border. They've been sending personnel and military equipment to Crimea, which is has been annexed illegally by Russia. Uh, and so, uh, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky has said, "Hey." This is a provocation. Russia's being more aggressive. Russia's just saying, hey, we're, we're responding to the aggression of, of Ukraine. We're just you know, sending uh, our, our personnel as we, as we can do. It's an internal matter. And so the NATO has convened an emergency session. The United States has condemned such action. It's actually quite concerning because it was looking as if the, the crisis in eastern Ukraine in the Donbass region was maybe going to relax, but I think we've seen a, a resumption of hostilities. It's never really ended. Um, it's, it's, very, it's a very complicated but very interesting issue. And so we don't have a lot of time to dig, in it to, to dig into it today, but I suggest you all take a look at that just because it could very well be that Russia is going to support the separatist movements in the Donetsk and Luhansk regions of Ukraine, which will really just cause Ukraine to just submerge into chaos. 
Yeah, and we'll have more about uh, that issue next week, depending, of course, on the developments that take place. Uh, Folks, I think that's it for us. Uh, Keep your eye out for a new episode on Monday featuring Glenn Gerstel, who was a former general counsel for the National Security Agency. We talk a lot about disinformation and sort of cyber issues with him. It's a really great episode. Please check out our last episode on Monday with Bill Prestap and Holden Triplett who talk about counterintelligence drawing on their long and distinguished experience as senior leaders on the topic in the FBI. But that's it for us. We'll see you soon. Thank you. Bye. Bye.